0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carpet City Cinema, a Hilo Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and uh, coming at you in less than two weeks from the last episode, Miracle of Miracles. A lot's happened last week to talk about uh, in the film world. in the Hilo films world specifically. It's kind of along the lines of a little bit more the same. I teased several weeks ago, a promotional art piece that we're having commissioned, and that has been completed. Um, But I need to nail down uh, details with a printer before I can really reveal what that is. But follow us on the Facebook page, you will that'll be your first chance to see that artwork, which really love how it turned out. And I think that people who are fans of our movie and also fans of how can I put it? the kind of uh 50s to 80s cinema that uh has so strongly influenced me will greatly appreciate this art piece when it is completed and unveiled. But today, today was the uh Oscar nominations came out for 2024 and kind of you know it was pretty much what you'd expect. There wasn't really too many surprises I didn't think um you know, Leonardo DiCaprio now getting nominated for Killers of the Flower Moon, and uh, Margot Robbie uh, for Barbie as an actress. Uh, those were kind of the, the only major ones that kind of stood out. But, you know, there's only five slots in each acting category. So in a year like this, where you had all these films like Oppenheimer and uh, Poor Things, it's just going to happen that, you know, even someone who you expect to get nominated is just going to kind of get... Um, not make the cut. But some interesting things, for sure, uh, I think for fans of pop culture and genre cinema is the fact that we now have uh, officially an Academy Academy Award-nominated Godzilla movie. The latest entry from Toho, the original makers of the franchise, Godzilla Minus One, was nominated for Best Visual Effects. So Godzilla movies having been around now for, this will be the 70th year uh, 2024. Since the original Japanese version of the first Godzilla movie uh, premiered, it's uh, pretty cool to finally see um, the big G get some Oscar respect. Also, as a big fan of Jodie Foster, got to shout her out for getting another uh, Oscar nomination this time supporting actress for Niad, the biopic. Um, and also to Annette Bening, who got the best actress nomination for the film. This is her uh, I think it's her fifth nomination. She has not won Jodie's won twice. But I love me some Jodie Foster, so I'm really excited for that. Also great to see uh, people who have been uh, really delivering strong performances for some time finally get their first Oscar nominations. Emily Blunt, Best Supporting Actress for Oppenheimer. Jeffrey Wright, Best Actor for American Fiction. You know, it's really uh, really cool to finally see them uh, get that recognition. Also, uh, my boy Ryan Gosling getting Best Supporting Actor nomination for uh, Barbie. Uh, just an incredibly gifted actor. And so really great to see that. I don't have any, um, yeah, no, just no real big surprises, I don't think. Um, you know, maybe a little bit like, a, a, you know, America Ferreira getting, uh, picking up the nomination for Barbie, but nothing too crazy, I didn't think. My uneducated and unwarranted guess is that Oppenheimer's going to sweep Best Picture director, actor for Killian Murphy, and, uh, supporting actor for Robert Downey Jr., um, I think actress is going to be probably a toss up between Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon or um, Emma Stone for Poor Things. Uh, you know, obviously, there's politics in all this in award ceremonies, and Stone already has an Oscar. But, you know, Poor Things really been coming out strong in the, uh, uh, you know, the last few months. And that really just kind of leaves the best supporting actress, um, which I have no idea who's going to win that i if i had to guess i'd say it's going to be between emily blunt for oppenheimer or a uh, divine joy randolph for the holdovers especially since randolph got a lot of recognition for dolomite is my name when that came out but my guess is it'll be one of those two but hey cool cool to see uh like i said some of these people finally getting you know murphy Killian murphy and robert downey jr well you know downey has been nominated before but it's been a uh a long time coming for him to win i think this is Good chance it's going to be his year, and then Murphy again, just another just incredibly gifted, talented actor who's never been nominated. And I, I feel confident he's going to take it. But so much for movies in the theaters and on the on the awards circuit. Let's take a look at uh, movies coming out on physical media. Uh, Film Masters, who we've talked up much on this podcast, uh, debuted a video on YouTube which was a a teaser of titles to come in 2024. And some were ones we already knew about, such as Tormented. But there were a couple that uh, this was the uh, first news on, and pretty exciting. A Night of the Blood Beast, 1958, Roger Corman production. He did not direct it, but he and his brother Gene produced it. And this is a a sci-fi horror hybrid with a plot that is... uh, very, very uh, reminiscent of a much later movie, a little thing called Alien. Uh, it's about a scient- um I'm sorry, an astronaut who comes back uh, from a mission and dies. Uh, his his uh, his craft crashes and he's killed upon uh, the impact of landing. And um, scientists retrieve his body and bring him to their uh, laboratory. And they then come to find out that he is. He appears by all accounts to be dead. He's actually still alive and he's been um, infested with cells, alien cells, which are slowly growing and developing into new life forms inside his body. And as this is happening, a monstrous giant alien creature is roaming about the countryside in this uh, isolated rural location. Uh, committing murder and mayhem, and it's a it's definitely a really fun film. Um, it was made by basically you know Corman and the director Bernard Kowalski and the actors. They all did this and then went on to do uh, Attack of the Giant Leeches. There, you know that came out in '59, and it's one of a, a group of. Corman-related movies from this time period, late 50s, mid-50s, early 60s, that has just been relegated to budget label releases. It's never really had a good DVD release or anything. And so it's really rewarding that Film Masters is going to tackle this one. I hope they do Giant Leeches, too. That's another one that's really kind of languished. Um, And some of the other Corman titles, like uh, Swamp Woman and Atlas. But really excited to see that this was featured in their uh, coming attractions reel. And the other movie that caught my eye in the uh, reel was from 1961, Five Minutes to Live, which is a uh, crime uh, film starring none other than music legend Johnny Cash as a uh, vicious, uh, sadistic thug who, uh, along with his buddies, uh, have tried to pull off a bank robbery, um, and they ended up uh, holding hostage the head of the bank's family, uh, which includes a very young Ron Howard. And again, this is another title that's just only had like dollar DVD releases, never really anything uh, of note. And last, have to absolutely give a shout out to the British. Well, now it's both the British and a U.S. label Indicator. Um, they've done some excellent work with Mexican genre films in the past, and they're continuing that trend with their uh, newest announcements of three uh, Mexican films uh, from the uh, late '60s and early '70s: uh, The Panther Women, The Bat Woman, and Santo Santo versus the Writers of Terror. And um, really looking forward to checking these out. I know at least two of these, the Panther Women and uh, the Batwoman, had um, U.S. releases that were really rough. They, they only had like, they had like this really horrible English dub that was created for the film recently so that it could air on the El Ray Network, and it was really poorly executed. Um, and it just wasn't really, uh, it was a really disappointing release that basically a lot of people like myself held off on. And now Indicator, which is you know they you you hear the term the criteria treatment, but for physical media labels that just pull out all the stops with extras and new transfers um, for movies, and now of course that that uh, term goes beyond criteria because so many labels have uh, rose rose to that level, if not surpassed it. And Indicator is definitely one of those one of those uh, boutique labels who just just incredible releases, and so that they're the ones tackling this. Um, is especially uh especially pleasing and really excited to see these I, I'm a, outside of uh if I had to pick my favorite if I could identify my like my favorite s- cinemas by nationality outside of America Mexico would definitely be one of the top ones I mean they're just I just love the sense of uh energy that's in the the golden age uh Mexican horror movies films like the Brainiac and Uh, the El Vampiro films and uh, Curse of the Crying Woman and just it's just they're incredibly entertaining incredibly atmospheric Um, just jaw-droppingly stylish at times Um, even within the realm of having to sometimes work on lower budgets Um, just incredible incredible work there so definitely stoked to see these and along with Mexico one of my favorite other uh, national cinemas is Canada big fan of Canadian cinema. I'm pretty sure I mentioned that before. And we lost one of the truly great Canadian filmmakers uh, this past week, although most of his career was spent uh, outside of Canada, the the career that we know of, is uh, Norman Jewison, the uh, great Academy Award winning uh, director. And his filmography is, uh, to be, put it simply, uh, ridiculous. Uh, just a list of the films he directed uh, would include In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, Moonstruck, The Thomas Crown Affair, the original with Steve McQueen, Agnes of God, the original Ball with James Caan, and Justice for All, Jesus Christ Superstar, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, uh, Soldier Story, The Cincinnati Kid, Send Me No Flowers, Fist uh, with uh, Sylvester Stallone, The Hurricane with Denzel Washington, I mean, just, you know, just an incredible body of work, and of those, uh, you know, in the, there's, more than one film in his in his repertoire that I like, but uh, in the heat of the night is one of those movies that's just deserves every inch of its reputation as a classic, and it's a film that continues to hold up to today. Uh, but it's interesting because he made these films like in the heat of the night and um, you know actors of God uh, movies that uh, dealt with very uh, very real uh, social issues, but he also did worked in musicals, and he worked in comedy with, like, Moonstruck, and then if you go back to the beginning of his career as a studio director, uh, he was doing, uh, you know, like I said, Seven No Flowers, which was the last of the Rock Cousin and Doris Day films, and he did uh, The Thrill of It All and uh, The Art of Love, which were two comedies with James Garner, and he did 40 Pounds of Trouble with Tony Curtis, and they were very much of that uh, early mid-60s universal comedy, Uh, milieu where, uh, you know, just incredibly popping colors and a a great sense of fun to those movies from that, that Universal put out in that era, their comedies, and The Art of Love, especially if you get a chance to check it out, definitely kind of a comedy that kind of falls under the radar. Uh, It's a movie with uh, James Garner and Dick Van Dyke, and uh, Garner gets top billing because he was more the star, film star at that time, but uh, it's really Van Dyke's uh, show in that movie, and he, they play a couple friends over in um, France, and um you know, Van Dyke is an artist. And when it's mistakenly believed that he has died, which he hasn't, uh, his art suddenly becomes more valuable. And uh, Garner starts uh, making all kinds of money off it his buddy Garner. And then of course, this leads to complications when it, you know, they realize well, in order to keep this going, we can't let anyone know that you're alive. So that's just a, you know, it's a very early film from uh, him, but definitely one that probably doesn't get sought out as much. And it's really, really enjoyable. But again, yeah, in the heat of the night, just Incredible, incredible movie. Had a chance to see that um, at a local theater a few years back. They went through the entire list of AFI's uh, 100 Greatest Movies and showed them all on the screen there. Got a chance to see it on the big screen at that point. But definitely check that out, too, if you haven't seen it. We also lost uh, Michael McReady. Age 91, probably not a name that's really familiar to a lot of people not by by virtue of his name, but his work uh, is known to horror fans. So he was the son of George McReady, who is a uh, you know one of the great character actors of uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s cinema. Uh, he's uh, probably best known for roles in such movies as the uh, film noir The Big Clock, where he plays uh, uh, the right hand man to uh, the evil Charles Lawton character. And he was in uh, Kubrick's Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas. He plays uh, General Miro, the one who orders Kirk Douglas to uh, take on the suicide mission that uh, eventually leads to the trial at the heart of the uh, movie. But Michael, his son, uh, started out uh, as an actor and uh, pretty much just did guest shots, really. Uh, is uh, All he did is just you know, small roles on TV shows, uh, you know, the Danny Thomas Show, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Death Valley Days. And uh, first of these he logged in uh, 1958. So you get to 1969 and he uh, teams up with another actor named Bob Kelgen. Might be mispronouncing that name, hopefully not. And together they direct this movie called Flesh of My Flesh. And um, Kelgen also wrote and started the movie, which I don't think there's any way to see the film. Um, it's a drama about incest. So don't know how well that went over back then, but that was kind of the beginning of uh, both those guys working behind the camera, because, like I said, they had both been actors before this. So in 1970, uh, Kelgin and McCready decided to team up and make a horror film, A what originally was going to be a softcore horror film called uh, The Loves of Count Eorga, Iorga, I O R G A, Vampire. And they uh, got an actor by the name of Robert Quarry to uh, play the uh, titular vampire. And when he came on board, he's like, "Well, why are you doing this as like a soft core film? Just make it a straight horror movie," and that's the the path they ended up taking. So Kelgen directed the movie, and MacReady produced and also played one of the kind of the male protagonist parts. And he was able to get his dad, George MacReady, to provide the narration for the film, and it was uh, retitled uh, Count Yorga Vampire and released by American International Pictures. It's an incredibly uh, fun a really entertaining horror movie. It's great because it's basically set in like contemporary uh, California setting, but with this, uh, you know, this uh, character of Yorga, wonderfully played by Corey, who's, uh, you know, has his uh, gothic trappings going on in his large estate. Um, And just a really great cast all around. Roger Perry uh, is in it too, and Michael Murphy, two actors who I'm a big fan of, and uh, Donna Anders, an actress who don't think she really did a lot but she was in this and another horror movie called werewolves on wheels both of which i'm a big fan of and the film did well enough that uh the next year 1971 they were able to do a sequel uh appropriately titled the return of count yorga and again kelgin directed and McReady produced he also has like a really small walk-on part in the movie um there were talks about doing a third movie um which would have potentially teamed up uh the count yorga character with uh, Dr. fives the uh, Vincent Price character who had uh, appeared in two films also made by AIP in the early 70s. And uh, my understanding is that the uh, the films were not successful enough, the second films in each of these franchises, to generate interest in a third one. I've also read that, uh, you know, Corey went and made a horror movie called The Death Master uh, around this time, and uh, according to Corey, uh, Michael McReady was kind of pissed off that he did that because he felt like he was basically trying to make a Count Yorga film that just didn't have the name Yorga in it. But be that as it may, that was 1971 when the second one came out. And then in 1972, uh, oh, I should also point out that in the second movie, um, the second Yorga film, uh, George McCready, Michael's dad, actually appeared in the film. And that was his last film role he ever did. But 1972, uh, McReady goes one more time into the horror genre, not with Bob kelchin this time, but with another director named Bud Townsend, and they make a movie called Terror at Red Wolf Inn. Again, McReady produces it. He has a supporting role as the sheriff. Yeah, it's got uh, quite a bit of uh, cult status because it is a pre-Texas Chainsaw Massacre cannibalism film, and. Uh, again another movie that's unfortunately uh been relegated to budget label hell you have to just kind of satisfy yourself with these murky transfers on 50 movie packs there was supposed to get a full-blown restoration several 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 years ago from code red and there was a big hang up with the elements and accessing the elements unfortunately hopefully someone will pick up that ball and get that across the line because it is an enjoyable film enjoyable horror movie um but that was it for uh uh, michael McReady's um uh you know, work behind the camera and work in the horror genre. In fact, if you check out his, uh, his credits, um, the only thing he ever did after uh terror at Red Wolf Inn, which was 1972 is that he has a very small part in the 1978 TV movie rescue from Gilligan's Island. And that's it. And in terms of working behind the camera in terms of acting, uh, don't know what happened if he just, what he, you know, what field he pursued. I, I tried to find some information about him. I couldn't even couldn't really find anything that, uh, to say what happened to him after that but what he left behind is definitely uh definitely very thankful for Yorga you know AIP product in the 70s um I think Yorga is my favorite of the you know American International Pictures movies of the 70s I you know I really 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 enjoy those two films they have also the cool thing about the Yorga movies too is that they're horror movies but they have a really great sense of humor in them and horror comedies can be tough uh because if they're successful at being funny, it kind of kills the uh, effectiveness of the horror part. Um, you know, Roger Corman likes to mix horror with comedy, and he really successfully did that with, you know, A Bucket of Blood and Little Shop of Horrors. But sometimes I felt like his whole theory, which I've heard talk about a lot, that you need to constantly balance horror with comedy. I'm like, I, I get what he's saying, but it could be really tricky because, you know, a lot of times you're just, if you have to choose between horror and comedy, a lot of times it's easy just to go for the comedy and, uh, you know, to focus on that and try to deliver the goods on that at the expense of the horror and taking away from the, uh, you know, the ability of the film to provide chills. And uh, the thing about the Yorker movies is they have this great sense of humor to them that doesn't dilute, um, does not dilute the horror elements, it really blends in well. um, And it's very, it's a very unique brand of humor that they that they showcase. And the actors in it, like Roger Perry, um, are actors who are great uh, at both being more traditional dramatic parts, leading men, but they also are actors who are very talented in uh, comedic bits. So they know how to walk that line between those two genres and make them work together well. So definitely check out the Yorga movies if you have not seen them. Now going back to Mexican cinema again, which we were just talking about, we uh, lost Gaston Santos, um, and he was age of 92 and he was actually, uh, he had a, left a, a very strong mark in Mexican cinema, but what he was best known for in, uh, in his, uh, career wise was that he was a, uh, or a, uh, which is another word for a horse-mounted bullfighter. And he had international success in, in that field. And it's such that by the time the, uh, Know, late 50s, early 60s came around, he's actually able to uh, launch a a film career, an acting career, uh, a good 15-year-ish run as a leading man, too, not just, and not just, like, cameos or, or uh, you know, bit parts based off his celebrity, though, no, like, he's a, like, legit star, movie star for that time period, and did a lot of westerns, but he also starred in uh, two really beloved uh, Mexican horror movies, uh, The Black Pit of Dr. M and The Living Coffin. And then sometime like late 60s, early 70s, he basically returned to his uh, his main career path, but had to note that he passed on because those are those are two of the better known uh, Mexican horror movies of that era. And lastly, one very, uh, very close to my childhood is that we lost um, actress Noreen Virgin, who is 77, Canadian actress. Um, who was the star of the uh, children's show today special, which ran, had a good run uh, throughout the eighties and it was a Canadian show, but it um, aired in the States here. And while many people, of my uh era grew up on sesame street as their uh pbs style uh, entertainment i was overwatching today's special it just had a great sense of imagination fun to it It was about basically a, a department store and at night uh it's closed up but no one's there um and noreen virgin she played this character named jody who worked at the store and in the store there was a mannequin named jeff who when the store closed and he put his hat on he came to life and then there were two Muppet-like characters. There was a mouse and then a security guard. And uh, it just had a great sense of fantasy and imagination to it. It was something that I really, really, really uh, enjoyed when I was in like my early single digits years. And so uh, to see that she passed really sucks because that was, again, such a, a foundational part of my childhood, but she had a really incredible career. So, you know, she did uh, act in, you know, a number of TV movies and uh, guest spots on other shows. She had a recurring role on the long-running Canadian show Police Surgeon, but really eventually got into uh, broadcast journalism is really where she ended up going, um, and then eventually became an educator and activist for, uh, you know, a uh, Black History and Black Rights in Canada. Uh, She did a lot to uh, educate people about the history of uh, Black people in her country. And really sad to see her pass on. All right, now we are to that wonderful part of the episode where we discuss the movie of the week. And this was a first-time watch for me from 1987, Barbara Streisand in Nuts. And in this film, Babs plays Claudia a high-class call girl who has been arrested and uh, charged with having murdered one of her clientele, played by uh, Leslie Nielsen. And when the film opens up, she is about to be arraigned in court. And her family, her parents, played by uh, Carl Malden and Maureen Stapleton, they want her lawyer to basically have it have it set up so that she's ruled incompetent to stand trial so that she just gets put into a psychiatric facility indefinitely and just is treated that way without having to go through a trial or the criminal process. And because, uh, Carl Malden's character has some, uh, connections, the district attorney's on board with going along with that. But the problem is that Streisand, she, um, she feels that she is not uh, guilty of the charges against her, and she doesn't want to be just institutionalized. She wants to actually have her day in court and be able to prove that she's, um, you know, uh, should not be held criminally responsible. But her behavior is so belligerent and uh, so aggressive that, uh, you know, the, the uh, court psychiatrist, played by Eli Wallach, uh, feels that, uh, she is, is not competent to, uh, stay trial. And because everybody's basically, uh, of that viewpoint, um, uh, no one's really taking her view, her, uh, her outlook on this, uh, into consideration. And so during the arraignment, she ends up, uh, punching out her lawyer and, uh, the judge, uh, because the lawyer obviously will not represent her anymore. uh, decides to have a public defender, who just happens to be in court at that moment, played by the great Richard Dreyfus uh, appointed as her attorney. And Dreyfus being kind of an outsider to uh, what's going on with Claudia and her history and her family and what their concerns are, he's really just uh, focused on doing what he his client wants him to do. So he agrees uh, with m- many reservations because she is Claudia is such a difficult person. Streisand's character is such a difficult person to interact with. He agrees, though, to uh, represent her viewpoint on this matter, and to um, push to get her ruled competent to stand to trial, and so that she can actually have her day in court. So this is a, it's a courtroom movie, but where the uh, the uh, proceedings are not about guilty or innocent of the actual crime. The uh, the courtroom um, drama that unfolds is about whether or not. Strazians character can even stand trial, and whether or not she's competent. And, um, you know, I'd say that this is, it's really interesting about this film. Because the thing that really roots you into this film is, as may have been implied by some of the people I've mentioned is the cast It is an incredible cast of uh, a plus 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 actors, many of them. Uh, in their older years, actors whose careers go back to the '40s, even, um, but still absolutely at the top of their game. Um, it's just a it's it's just a masterful uh, opportunity to watch just some of the greatest performers all congregated into one cast. So aside from, you know, Dreyfus, who is just you know so excellent and does such a great job of creating this, uh, you know, this really. Uh, three dimensional character, but he does it with like nuance, he never plays big, but it's just very relatable. It's a very realistic character of this public defender who really does, you know, want to represent Streisand's best interest, but also finds her incredibly aggravating to deal with finds the whole situation frustrating. It's a situation he didn't even want to be in. In the first place, he was just uh, chosen for this task. You've got uh, Mulder and Stapleton two Oscar winners uh, as the parents uh, Wallach uh, of course, and then, you know, the ugly of the good, the bad, and the ugly, another legendary, uh, character actress, the psychiatrist, the judge in the film, um, uh, proceeding over these, uh, over the trial is, uh, James Whitmore, uh, the great James Whitmore, two-time Oscar nominee, um, and this is kind of before, it's interesting, because this was Malden's last theatrically released movie. He still did some TV movies and some guest spots, um, And for Stapleton and Wallach, they still had a bit left in their careers still left to go. But for Whitmore, even though he had this incredible career already, everyone, you know, is very familiar to audiences, you know, 40 some year career films like Oklahoma and the asphalt jungle, and uh, them the classic science fiction movie. Uh, This was before he kind of became uh, recognized by a whole new generation with his role in the Shawshank Redemption. And uh, playing the district attorney in the film is another great character actor, Robert Weber, who uh, fans of uh, that mid-50s, mid-70s cinema will be very familiar with. He's one of the jurors in 12 Angry Men. He was in uh, Robert Aldrich's The Dirty Dozen, Harper with Paul Newman, uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Um, and this would actually be his last film. Sadly, he passed away just two years after this film uh, from Lou Gehrig's disease. But he's the district attorney in the movie. And I think of all of these uh you know, they're of course they're all again incredible actors, incredible performances. Uh, you know, Dreyfus is definitely D- Dreyfus's performance. I think is one of the most memorable in the film. But really, you have to, uh, I think maybe even just edging out him out a little is Whitmore as the judge. He does so much with so little in this film. If you just watch his performance, uh, again, it's a great thing about these casts is that they've been around so long; they have such expertise. They know how to not overplay their parts, because it's a courtroom uh, film. So, you know, a lot of times, there are opportunities in those types of movies to really ham it up, to really kind of, you know, go to the uh, the back row in a courtroom film. Um, a lot of opportunities for histrionics. But these cast members underplay it while uh, imbuing their parts with such realism and such nuance. And Whitmore, if you watch his performance in this film, even when he's not the focus of attention, when he's just in the background uh, while, uh, you know, someone's testifying, just watch him. Watch him. Watch the way he moves his hands. Watch the little the little things he does that just uh, really breathe a life into his character. Huge shout out, though, to Leslie Nielsen, um, who's oh part, as we as we watch the film, basically, we we start to get a glimpse into Streisand's backstory, uh, what kind of led her to becoming this call girl, this prostitute, despite coming from an affluent family. Uh, And we start to see, you know, bits and pieces of the uh, the murder uh, played to us. And Nielsen, um, you know, a lot of people may not be aware of where this was in the trajectory of his career but you know Nielsen well, he was when he started out he was like a traditional leading man back in the 50s and stuff I mean he was in Tammy and the Bachelor with Debbie Reynolds and Forbidden Planet uh, the great science fiction movie and going into the 60s uh, you know popping up in a lot of TV shows Columbo and Hawaii 5 and of course he's the captain in the Poseidon Adventure he was someone who even when he had he never quite could totally submit himself as a bankable leading man it seemed like Because even in some of those more high-profile movies like Tammy and Forbidden Planet, you know, Tammy, it's Debbie Reynolds' vehicle, and Forbidden Planet, it's the special effects uh, in the spectacle of the movie. And it seemed as time went on, you know, he was still able to get leading parts in uh, lower-tier movies, and uh, there were attempts for him to kind of get his own TV series, but it just never totally seemed to click for him. and then, uh, of course, 1980, airplane comes out, and he's one of that group of actors with Robert Stack and Lloyd Bridges and Peter Graves who just has success, such a success, uh, you know, lampooning the kind of roles they were known for. And the film was a huge hit, and then the makers of that movie they they did the TV series Police Squad and brought him on for that, and uh, had a, a cult following, even though it didn't last very long. And at this point, Nuts was basically the last movie he did when he before getting the call that okay, we're going to take Police Squad, and we're going to make that into a movie, The Naked Gun. And pretty much from then until the end of his career, then of his life, those next, you know, 20 or some years, whatever it was, uh, he totally reinvented himself as this, uh, you know, incredibly successful, incredibly talented, gifted, popular comedic actor. And people who grew up on those films, the Naked Gun movies, and, uh, you know, Mr. Magoo, and Hard, and all those, had no, you know, it's, Probably difficult for them to even have a concept of him as a leading man or as a dramatic actor. But in *Nuts*, he's incredible. He he really is a very uh, frightening, imposing person. Uh, you know, Streisand talked about just you know how terrified she was of him, not because of Nielsen himself, but just his performance, and that it was really effective. And it's just a great reminder of you know his talent and what he could bring. Uh, it kind of gives you mixed feelings because one hand, you're like, oh, man, I wish he had just been more recognized for this kind of ability and had been able to go further with this and that this had been the, the, uh, you know, stepping off point to, uh, you know, a highly regarded career and uh, more dramatic and character-driven parts. But then the other side of that, is, hey, the guy had paid his dues. He'd been around for like, what, 35 years? And he was able to finally get that star success status as a comedic actor. And yes, that's what he was known for for the rest of his career. But hey, as long as he was happy, you know, he finally, you know, was able to reap what he had sown all those years, uh, more power to him. But uh, terrific performance, absolutely terrific performance. Which then brings us to Streisand. So Streisand, you know, this you know, no surprise. Streisand was someone who's very much uh, took creative control of the projects she had, and this was her baby for sure. Um, her performance is good, absolutely, it's a good performance. But the problem with it is that it's her character, and it's one of the flaws, the big flaws with this movie, is that Claudia, her situation that she's on trial for, which is whether or not she's competent. The outcome never seems in doubt. The the film just does not, and this is a big problem with the film, it does not really ever sell to you that the outcome is in jeopardy. It it shows a Claudia as this person who's very sarcastic, very outspoken, very brash, uh and yes, prone to outbursts of anger. But she's being uh you know, faced with the dilemma of being actually ruled mentally incompetent to even assist her own defense to even go to trial and her behavior though one might find it aggressive or annoying or difficult to deal with the film never is able to e- really sell to you the 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 stakes that oh this behavior actually goes to the level where someone might think she's you know needs to be institutionalized it never really rises to that level and compounding that problem is that her character, to be honest, just isn't that interesting. Um, you know, it's, we, we, we do find out a little, like I said, a little bit more about her as the trial unfolds. We find out more about what made her who she is, but there's still not a lot of depth to the character. I mean, it's just, it's a character that we've seen in a lot of other movies. It's not, I wouldn't say there's anything too groundbreaking, groundbreaking or, uh, Really uh, 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 revelatory about this character of Claudia that we haven't ever experienced before in in cinema, and so this film it's built around this character who is a not terribly engrossing, and then b uh, you know going up uh, against a situation that we never really feel she's in peril about, and that's that's kind of makes viewing this film so interesting because if you were to ask me, hey, was that a good movie? I'd be like, well, I I don't know if I can go that far, because the film, the center of the film is a is a character that doesn't really pull you in, uh, faced with a plight that never feels uh, makes you feel like she's in jeopardy. But yeah, although I I would be, I wouldn't be able to say that's a good movie. This is a good movie. I also, I also just found the experience of watching it so rewarding, because it has this cast. All in one production under one roof, and just to watch them at work, it's it's great. It's just great to see them. I mean, this is it's a a, a tremendous exercise to you know show someone like if you just want if you wanted to show someone acting like just acting at at, at its at its great greatness at acting at its peak. Um, actors who are able to underplay things and yet totally. Uh, Wrap you up into uh, their performance. This is a, a wonderful film to uh, to choose to demonstrate that. But like I said, the, it's at the same time beyond that. It is difficult to recommend for the story. It's it's not a film I can recommend for the the drama at the heart of it, which you know isn't ideal when you have a courtroom drama, right? You want. <laughs> hey come see come see this movie and it's a uh, a trial drama it's it's a it's built around one character uh facing um you know, an outcome that will have a huge impact on the rest of her life, all set within the framework of a, a judicial proceeding, and you're like, "Oh man, I, I want to check this out because I, you know, the thing that those kind of movies usually do is they, they, they build the suspense about what's going to happen at the end, and they get you wrapped up into the play of of their protagonist. And this film does neither of those things. It it completely uh, blows it on two of the points that people most rec- come to recognize this type of film for. But again, because you have all these great players in it. You still find the experience of watching it incredibly rewarding. I think the first half, the first like sixty, sixty five percent is that's really the strong point because that's where you get to see you know, a lot of these uh, actors, for example, Carl Malden and Maureen Stapleton having to testify and you get to see um, uh, the mechanics of Richard Dreyfus prepping the case. So it gives all those other all those uh, supporting players and characters uh, time to shine. And then as the film progresses, it becomes more uh, Streisand centric. You know, she, she has quite a lengthy scene uh, where she's testifying. And it just feels, it feels a bit long if it's a bit much it starts to uh that's a, that's a moment where it starts to almost feel a bit stagey which this was based on a play and that was written by uh tom topor and originally premiered in 1979 it was off off broadway and um part of uh, the the process of this movie making its way to uh, the big screen was that Universal Studios originally purchased the film rights and financed the play's move to Broadway. And Ann Toomey played the part of Claudia on stage and actually got a Tony nomination for that. But yeah, so the film, it is a great deal of it set in the courtroom, so some some bits, um, you know, in the, in the lockup areas and in the uh, medical wards, but a, a good deal of it does take place in the courtroom. And it doesn't really feel uh, theatrical though until you get to that kind of long, almost monologue-like uh, part where we just have Strizent testifying, and there's some interaction with the DA at that point. And it does feel like at that point, the the cumulative weight of the problems I mentioned, her her character being somewhat uh, less than involving, her her situation not feeling dire enough. That's where the weight of it really starts to kind of catch up, and and uh, the film starts to uh, ha- meet its, meet its struggles and uh, becomes a little bit slu- sluggish at that point. Interestingly, when the plan was originally made to uh, make this into a movie, uh, it was Mark Rydell was attached to direct it. And he, uh, still with us, but uh, Academy award nominated director known for such movies as On Golden Pond. He had done The Cowboys with John Wayne, The Reavers with Steve McQueen at this point. Um, he had done uh, Cinderella Liberty with James Caan. He had done The Rose with uh, Bette Medler. And so he was brought on board to direct it, and it was going to actually start Deborah Winger uh, originally. And even at that point, because it was around 1982, Streisand had wanted to, has expressed interest in in starring in this but She was still working on Yentl, and uh, Rydell did not want to have to wait on things, so he was going to move forward with uh, Winger. And should note that uh, because of the subject nature of this film and uh, you know, some of the, um, I, I don't, I can't say too much, because I don't want to reveal any spoilers but it was kind of controversial at the time for the, for the studios, they were kind of concerned about um, how it would, how it would be received. So just something to kind of keep in mind as they were going to move forward with uh, making this film. And so, you know, Universal kind of had a little bit of cold feet, and they eventually sold the entire project over to Warner Brothers. And it eventually things got rolling again in around nineteen eighty six. Uh Streisand got signed on to do uh, uh, the movie. She got signed on for a five million bucks plus uh, a percentage of the profits. But uh Rydell and um, Tom Toper, the uh, the playwright who was also credited with covering the script, they were just butting heads at this point and just really uh you know, not not seeing eye to eye on things. And so uh Rydell ended up leaving, which Coincidentally, he was the orig- one of the original directors uh, hired to do A Star is Born with Streisand and had also left that film. And then uh, Streisand ended up bringing being able to secure uh, Martin Ritt, uh, which this would be Ritt's uh, penultimate movie, his next to last film. And Ritt had an incredibly long career, uh, really known for his work uh, with actors having uh, directed numerous Academy Award winning and nominated performances. And he had directed such films as HUD and Norma Rae and um, Sounder and The Front, uh, The Long Hot Summer, and uh, Edge of the City with Cassavetes and Poitier. And so just this incredibly uh, well-respected, highly esteemed uh, filmmaker. But going back just a little bit, I think it would be interesting to see Winger in this role. I think the fact that she was more than a dozen years younger than Streisand would have really helped. I think that Streisand's is kind of pushing it a little bit age-wise to play this character, and part of that's the problem. It's not just that she's too old to play the character, but it's also the way they present the character. Um, you know, in the scenes we see of her, for example, interacting with Leslie Nielsen, which, from the narrative of the film, are flashback scenes. as As the film story unfolds and we kind of get flashes back to how she met up with Leslie Nielsen and what unfolded before them, she she really seems like a. a uh, totally competent, highly functioning, um, uh, individual. And so there's really no, uh, the transition from that to her being this completely unleashed, wild, belligerent person, it seems to go from zero to 60. And the film does have, again, I can't go into spoiler territory. It does kind of give some, uh, you know, uh, offerings as to why such a sharp transition could happen, but it never really sells that idea. I almost feel like this film would have been better off structurally, if they had actually just uh, totally gotten rid of the whole going back and forth in time thing and just started out with us spending time with Streisand as a call girl, going into the whole meeting with Nielsen and what happens there in chronological order, and so that we can see it would be more impactful and more believable to actually see the process unfold of her going through this really violent encounter, and that kind of triggering this uh, explosive emotional breakdown. But instead, we kind of see her when she's already at, like, you know, uh, when she's at 11 out of 10. And then we have to kind of go back and see clips of her, you know, acting in a more stable way. I mean, the whole thing just undermines the, again, undermines the believability of her character. She just comes across which goes to the point I was making earlier. Uh, it undermines her plight. We're supposed to, you know, believe that she could really be in this situation where she could be institutionalized, and because she's coming across like she's mentally incompetent. But instead, because of the way things unfold in the film, the way they present it, we as an audience see, and we think, well, no, she's not. She doesn't even remotely come across like she's incompetent. She comes across like someone who had this, you know, really trauma, traumatic experience, and it's also just someone who's probably kind of a you know, a bit of a wise ass in, in person anyways. And so uh, she's just kind of bucking against the system because they're not really hearing her out on what really happened between her and Nelson Nielsen. So we're left with this really wildly uneven portrayal, this character where um, you know, we start off by seeing her, like I said, as kind of this high energy smart ass. Then we're led to believe, the film tries to make us believe that this isn't just her being a smartest, she's actually mentally, she could be mentally incompetent. That's, that's something we're really supposed to believe that she could be ruled as that. And then the film goes back in time to show us as her, uh, you know, like I said, this totally put together functioning, normal person, which, you know, seems completely 180 from what we've seen before. And from all this, we're supposed to pull this picture of this totally cohesive, uh, you know, three dimensional character, and it just, it doesn't work. None of that comes together. And I think that if Winger had been in the part, I think that she could have uh, found the nuance in that better. Maybe I think I could see I could see Winger creating moments that maybe weren't there originally, which doesn't say that Streisand doesn't have the ability, but I just can see someone like Winger having that ability to kind of uh, create moments to kind of better show the transition of this character from you know functioning to explosive to potentially believably unhinged and and just like i said mentally incompetent i think she could have brought those different vibes to it and i think that being a little younger having this character be a little younger i think it would make it would make her character more believable and i part of that's because of things that you learn about in the film that i can't give away because you know again it's it kind of goes into spoiler but the idea is you know she comes from, like I said, she comes from this successful, affluent family. And what is it that made her go from that to becoming a prostitute? Well, if she's younger in the film, if the character is younger, like a Deborah Winger age, like 30, she would have been like 32, I think, in um, around this time, whereas Streisand was like, like mid-40s. If she's younger, then the journey from being in this being this young person in this affable family environment, in this uh, you know financially well-off environment, the time period between that and being a high-end call girl, it's shorter, right? It's more condensed because obviously she's younger, so it's been less time since she left the home and and has gone through the experience she's gone through that eventually led her to becoming this prostitute, and so that because it's less time has taken place, uh, you know, in that journey then it makes it more believable that she could have such a raw, contentious reaction to the violent situation with Leslie Nielsen. It makes it more believable that such an incident could really push her emotionally to the edge. And the increased believability of that, of course, then makes us buy more into the idea of her truly being in jeopardy through this trial, that she really could be institutionalized. But because Streisand's a decade older than her, then she just comes across so much more stable and established, especially in these, these, like I said, these flashbacks to her, you know, showing her going about just her daily life and, uh, you know, meeting up with Lindsay Nielsen and stuff. And so because we see her as this older, more established person who kind of has her act together, and just the way she handles her day to day life. And because we're not seeing in real time, her experience the trauma of the violence with Leslie Nielsen, then the idea of her going from this cool, calm, professional person to this belligerent a-hole, it just seems more unbelievable and hard to swallow. And again, I don't want any of this to come across like it's a criticism of Streisand. I don't think, I, I think that even, you know, even if you had Winger in the part, you'd still have a cliche nature to this character. But I think it would have just benefited from a younger person, a person more of a Winger's Winger's vibe. Uh, I think that would have probably been better. It would have the only thing that, though, the downside to Winger being in it is, I feel like Stapleton and Malden would have probably come across as too old to be her parents. Not that they are too old to be would be too old to be Winger's parents if you look at when everyone's born and everything, but winger just always projected more youth than she had because this is around the time she did like black widow which i saw like a year or so ago that's a fun fun suspense film bob rafelson movie Her, her versus Teresa russell and uh she's definitely someone who always just seems a lot younger than she is and then you put that with carl malton and maureen stapleton who are that generation that always looks a lot older than they are uh yeah you might have i don't know that could have that could have uh maybe required some shifting around to some of the supporting parts interesting thing is that the dreyfus role he was originally set to play the role then ended up changing his mind he went over to do the barry levinson movie tin men and eventually obviously obviously he did end up in the role but in between uh you look at some of the actors who were considered to play the part and dustin hoffman was kind of like a front runner and um was ready to, to go in for it, but his salary was too high for them to, to go for. And then according to, uh, contemporary, uh, news pieces of the time, Paul Newman, Al Pacino, and Marlon Brando were all considered. I don't know if that's just, um, uh, nonsense, uh, you know, uh, publicity of the time, but those were some of the people being considered for the part. I definitely think that, uh, you know, Dreyfus was the way to go for absolutely. Because especially like Newman, I mean I love Paul Newman, but this is just coming just a few years after the verdict. And um and maybe that's what they were kind of thinking with Pacino too, was because this is just a few years after Injustice for All. Uh that those would be kind of uh good guys for this part. But I I definitely think that uh you know Dreyfus was the right choice. Uh definitely compared to even Hoffman, you know, again, great actor, but not right for this part. Brando would have been interesting. I think Brando and anything would have been interesting to say the least. Dreyfus still the right choice even above Brando, but I would like to see whatever that was. That what Brando would have done with this uh with this part uh for sure. I uh have Carl Malden's autobiography here. I picked it up at a sale uh, a few months back and so I was kind of looking at what he wrote about this experience and it seemed like he had a really good time doing it um it was interesting his perspective because streisand you know she was one of those people who really took control over her productions and so she had him like read for the part and she wanted him to meet it and meet him and you know that was really uh um, something that malden found a little you know uh, unusual at this point in his career having already won the oscar and everything that to, to have to read for a part but he went along with it and um he spoke uh, about basically for him, it's like old home week, you know, working again with people like Wallach and Stapleton, who he knew from way back. And uh, they had this thing where if one of them was sitting in the audience uh, in the courtroom and one was on the stand and they were filming a scene where, you know, one, one person was testifying, they would kind of rely on each other so that if say Carl Malden was on Eli Wallach was in the audience and Eli Wallach felt like Carl Malden should probably do one more take he would kind of like signal they'd, they'd signal to each other and then the actor could be like ah, I want to do one more just you know it was this kind of rapport they had built with each other over the years where they could rely on each other to kind of see how their performance was coming across and coach each other without it being something that was obvious to the the filmmakers and the people around and that way it gave them uh, an opportunity to you know if they felt like they had to go for another take or, or wanted to try something different but that was pretty interesting to read about this and like I said yeah, this was Malden's last theatrically released movie. He still, like I said, did some TV movies and was still around for quite a while after this, but this was the last uh movie in theaters he was ever in. Film ended up getting uh several uh Golden Globe nominations for uh Best Drama and uh Streisand, uh was uh nominated for best actress in a drama and then Dreyfus for uh Best Supporting Actor. But uh ended up box office wise uh, had a budget of twenty five million and a box office of thirty one so i don't know if that includes if that's just the initial theatrical run um obviously that's that's not a not the kind of profit you want uh just six million off a twenty five million investment i'm guessing but uh still uh you know a film that generally speaking is is well regarded the film was released on d v d by warner and um Pretty affordable if you get a chance to check it out. Has a commentary track too, which drives in. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but definitely want to dive into that at some point. An older transfer for sure on the DVD. Um, you know, at least it's the right aspect ratio and everything. It's 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 good to go. But hopefully they'll uh, get around to getting this on Blu-ray at some point. But again, uh, not a movie. Not a movie. I I would say put the stamp of the, the seal of approval on in terms of. It hitting, meeting all the goals it set out to meet. It does not achieve that. It does not uh, bring you uh, into the center of its courtroom dynamics and drama and make you, uh, you know, hold you with rapt rapt attention about what's going to happen to Streisand's character and, and uh, make you really concerned about her and her play. It does not do that. And it should be able to do that, because that's kind of what a courtroom drama is kind of one of the things it's its goals. But at the same time, just for this incredible gallery of actors, all under the same roof, all totally nailing it, it's absolutely something. For that, I for those reasons alone, that I would I recommend it for just to see, uh, you know, the acting craft at work. Also, I have, I must take issue with the last scene in the movie. Not, not the outcome of the movie, not the outcome of the courtroom proceedings, but the actual last scene. I wasn't sure about that. Don't think that's how that works. You'll know what I mean when you watch it. <laughs> but uh but hey, what what can I say? But yeah, nuts. Nineteen eighty seven. Uh picked this up actually at a garage sale. I it's a movie that's been on my radio for some time and someone it was it was this not this past summer, I don't think it was the summer before. I picked up two Barbara Streisand movies I had wanted to watch for some time and just had never gotten around to getting. This one and Up the Sandbox, which is a movie she did in the 70s, which is kind of one of her lesser-known films, but it sounds really interesting. So hopefully I'll get around to that, too. Um, I'm a little behind on my Streisandology, uh, but definitely want to dive more into that. But yeah, that'll, that'll do it for this week's episode of Carpet City Cinema. Thank you very much for tuning in. And please continue to give us all the love possible uh, by ways of sharing our social media posts and following us on social media and whatever platform you're listening to us on, uh, give us the best possible review that that platform allows. But until next week, thank you for tuning in and take care.